The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of Book 7, Chapters 6-8. through eight. Jean Frollo, freed from the captivity of a cramped space and a tedious conversation, takes his brother's purse and goes out into the city to spend its contents dissolutely. On his way, he bumps into a growling Quasimodo on the stairs, passes the contemplative Claude Frollo and Charmelou examining the carving on the porch outside, and then hears the liberated Phoebus explosively uttering oaths he had long repressed for his genteel companions. Jean greets his friend Phoebus by name which, however absorbed he may have been in his conversation, immediately attracts the attention of the nearby Claude Frollo. Jean invites Phoebus to have a drink. When the latter declares he has no money, the former makes dramatic display of his riches, quote, emptying the purse on a neighboring post with the air of a Roman saving his country, unquote. Phoebus is duly impressed. They set out for the tavern, and, as Hugo tells us, it is indeed needless to say that, quote, they first picked up the money, and that the archdeacon followed them, unquote. Following the two friends with stealthy tread and eager attention, Claude Frollo is able to overhear every word of their conversation. That conversation becomes of especial interest to him when they hear a distant tambourine, and Phoebus says they must hasten so that the little thing with the goat, whose devil of a name he can never remember, does not accost him in the street. He does not wish to be accosted by her in public, but he is only too happy to boast to Jeanne, with a laughing whisper and a triumphant air, that he is to meet her later that night, in private. While Jeanne and Phoebus enjoy the laughing, feasting, toping, candlelit revelry inside the Palm Dev, a man with a just-purchased cloak pulled up to his very nose walks imperturbably up and down outside, like a pikeman in front of his sentry box. The two tipplers eventually emerge, Jeanne reeling and rambling, and Phoebus eager not to miss his evening rendezvous. Realizing he has no money to pay for the room, Phoebus begs it of his drunken companion, who responds with drunken non-sequiturs, until Phoebus loses his patience and pushes him against the wall. Jeanne falls onto the pavement and into a deep, snoring sleep, and his friend goes on his way, leaving him behind. The man in the cloak, who has been following them like a shadow, sees the prostrate student, heaves a deep sigh, and departs in the captain's wake. Though we have not been told explicitly, we know this man to be Claude Frollo. And so, we have witnessed the man who had pledged his life to his younger brother leave him lying unconscious in the gutter. In front of his alma mater, Phoebus stops, from habit, before a statue, and then, turning, finds himself face to face with a living statue that stares at him with, quote, a pair of eyes full of that vague light seen at night in the pupil of a cat's eye, unquote. Though he would not have feared a thief with a bludgeon, this petrified man freezes his very blood. Phoebus confronts him, warning him that if he is a robber, he's come to the wrong shop and better go next door. The specter, Claude Frollo, 
grips him by the arm, and with a sepulchral voice addresses him by name, says he knows of his rendezvous, and asks the name of the woman he is to meet. Phoebus responds, cheerfully, Esmeralda, and Claude Frollo's claws tighten around his wrist as he calls him a liar. Phoebus's face flames with rage at the insult, and he violently bounds backward, claps his hand to his sword hilt, and calls for swords and blood. Claude Frollo checks his fury by reminding him, in a voice quivering with bitterness, of his rendezvous. Phoebus agrees to put the party off until tomorrow and go to his appointment, but then recalls aloud again that he hasn't a penny to pay for the room. Claude Frollo then makes him an eerie and disturbing bargain. He will give him the money, if Phoebus will hide him in some hidden corner of the room. I describe this chapter as spine-tingling. That had to be the most spine-tinglingly creepy moment for me, but there are many more to choose from ahead. Reaching La Falloardelle, Phoebus knocks on the door, utters some oaths by way of a secret password, and gives the old woman a crown piece, which she quickly stashes in a drawer, and which a ragged little boy in the corner promptly steals and replaces with a dried leaf. Then he and Claude Frollo follow her up a ladder to a room on the upper floor, where he hides the archdeacon in a hole behind a door. Through a crack in the worm-eaten door he is able to see everything, and soon he sees rise through the trap door Esmeralda. He trembles, his veins swell, his eyes cloud, and he faints. When he recovers consciousness, he sees the two youthful figures seated together, Phoebus's eyes amorously radiant, and Esmeralda's modestly downcast. With still more modesty, she asks Phoebus to forgive her for coming, and with still more lechery, he scolds her instead for requiring so much urging. She voices her fear that she is breaking a vow, divesting the amulet of its virtue, and destroying her chances of ever finding her parents. But she is willing to endure all, because, she tells Phoebus, she loves him. Her strange chasteness makes him uneasy, but her declaration of love brings him back into familiar territory, and he throws his arm around her waist. When she asks him to say whether he loves her, he fluidly recites a well-rehearsed and often-repeated declaration of love that prompts the naive young girl to look at the ceiling with angelic happiness and murmur, quote, Oh, at such a moment, one might well wish to die, unquote. Phoebus objects that on the contrary, it is precisely the time to live, and we know exactly what he means which makes all the more cringingly painful the fact that he declares passionate adoration for her, but can't remember her name. He makes grand promises about living with her and making her the happiest creature in the world, taking advantage of her tender and dreamy response to unlace her bodice. But when she asks him to instruct her in his religion, that they might be married, and he responds with surprise and scorn, Nonsense! Why should we marry? And proceeds to remove her neckerchief. She springs up with a start 
and a flame in her cheeks. The priest, meanwhile, watches all, staring with lustful desire, as at a tiger watching a jackal devour a gazelle. Phoebus says to Esmeralda coldly and calculatingly that she must not love him, and what is surely a well-tried strategy works on her like a charm. She swears her undying love, blames herself for being unworthy of marriage, and begs for the honor of being his mistress and his servant. And as Phoebus bends over her, pressing his lips to her bare shoulders, behind him appears the convulsed and livid face of the priest. He is holding a dagger, which he plunges into Phoebus's back. Esmeralda faints, and as she is losing consciousness, she has a vague awareness of a fiery kiss burning on her lips. When she recovers her senses, she is surrounded by officers, one of whom says, in another of the many spine-tinglingly ominous moments, she is a sorceress who has stabbed a captain. The second of my posts was called From the Comedic to the Sinister. The emotional range of these chapters was startling. At times I laughed in delight, and at others I shuddered in horror. I laughed at Jayon Frollo's mostly inconsequential mischief, as he pilfers what he can and makes resentful trouble on his way out of his place of forced hiding. Quote, he cast a look at tenderness and admiration into the interior of the precious purse, adjusted his dress, wiped his boots, dusted his poor shoulder pads all gray with ashes, whistled a tune, frisked about, looked to see if there was nothing left in the cell which he might carry off, scraped up a few glass charms and trinkets from the top of the stove, thinking he might pass them off upon Isabeau La Thierry for jewels, then gave a push to the door, which his brother had left ajar as a final favor, and which he left opened in his turn as a final piece of mischief, and hopped down the winding stairs as nimbly as a bird." Unquote. I also laughed at the account of Phoebus's dubious act of mercy as he abandons his friend in the mud. Quote, With a remnant of that brotherly compassion which never quite forsakes the heart of a toper, Phoebus rolled Jayon with his foot over upon one of those pillows of the poor which Providence keeps in readiness at every street corner in Paris, and which the rich scornfully stigmatize as dunghills." and at this mocking description of Phoebus's reminiscence about his alma mater. Quote, it was at this college that he had passed through what he was pleased to call his studies. Unquote. But with the priest's chilling bargain with Phoebus, the chapter takes a deeply sinister turn. From the description of Claude Frollo, hiding in his hole, finding an eerie way to cool his feverish forehead. Quote, his head was burning. As he felt about him with his hands, he found upon the ground a bit of broken glass, which he pressed to his forehead, its coolness somewhat refreshing him." Unquote. To the creepily poetic ways in which Hugo describes the priest's boiling blood, predatory lust, and sinister jealousy. Quote, the young and lovely girl her garments in disorder, abandoning herself to this ardent young man, made his veins run molten lead. 
an extraordinary agitation shook him. His eye sought, with lustful desire, to penetrate beneath all the unfastened pins. Anyone who had at this moment seen the face of the unhappy man glued to the worm-eaten bars might have thought he saw a tiger glaring from his cage at some jackal devouring a gazelle. His pupils glowed like a candle through the cracks of the door. Unquote. To this chilling description of the moment when the priest's stifled lust erupts into violence. Quote, All at once above the head of Phoebus she saw another head, a livid, green, convulsed face with the look of a soul in torment. Beside this face there was a hand which held a dagger. It was the face and the hand of the priest. He had broken open the door, and he was there. Phoebus could not see him. The girl was motionless, frozen, mute at the frightful apparition, like a dove which chances to raise its head at the instant when the sea-eagle glares into its nest with fiery eyes." Unquote. I've held off making a reference to this, but now seems like a good time. Doesn't this all just sound like the perfect subject of a Disney movie? The last of my posts was called Meaning Mindfulness. Perhaps you are familiar with the concept, popular among many psychologists today, of mindfulness. I recall my early dismissive reaction to the term. It sounded to me like some hippy-dippy fad that had to involve incense and meditative chanting. But I found the actual concept, as I understand it, extraordinarily valuable. Here it is in my own words, in the form I've found valuable to me. Essentially, most of us frequently have trains of anxious thoughts running through our heads, some of them provoked by direct experience, and others utterly unrelated to the moment at hand. As one psychologist put it to me, we continually face a choice, whether to get on board the train and go with it, or to simply watch it go by. The better you become at watching it pass and refusing to be taken as a hostage passenger, the less frequently these thought trains will run. That is where mindfulness comes in. If anxious thoughts are calling you on board, insert your own most common fears and negative self-talk here. One way to keep your feet firmly on the ground is to make a deliberate and conscious effort to be mindful of what is actually happening immediately around you. The feel of the air on your skin, the sound of your family's voices, the textures in the curtains, etc. If your mind is flooded with abstract fears, you can combat them with a focus on concrete reality. I think reading literature helps us to form a different but related skill. I will call it meaning mindfulness. Literature, too, can help us develop the skill of awareness of the present moment, but a higher-order awareness. Rather than a focus on our surroundings at a sensory level, we develop a consciousness of the meaning behind our experiences. A friend of mine once ran a blog called The Little Things, the whole focus of which was an effort to maintain awareness of and to celebrate the small, everyday joys of life. But really, what it meant for her to celebrate those little things was to see their connection to the big things, 
to grasp the relationship between everyday experiences and fundamental values. She was being mindful of the moment and of its meaning. Great literature, with its purposeful, essentialized, stylized universes, facilitates these connections between concrete events and their broader significance. And when we confront our own more disorderly and complex lives, having read literature, we come armed with the experience of having made such connections, and with a keener ability to make them. Having read Notre Dame de Paris, I will forever find greater joy in dragonflies and bells and cathedral windows and goats and babies' feet. But more important, I will have a greater capacity to find meaning in anything.